I'm Marcus Smith. Thanks for joining with me for this episode of the Constant Wonder Podcast. If you have followed this podcast for a bit, you'll know that close, slow, patient listening or watching for the unheard or the unseen has emerged as a recurrent theme. Recently, we shared with you the sound of a beetle grub chewing under the bark of a pine tree. Audible chewing. I had never imagined such a thing. Knowing I can hear a humble grub with my naked ears makes me want to listen ever more closely and for more such surprises. Because subtle sounds like this one most often go unheard by us humans. Something to remember in all of this is that hearing what is unheard isn't quite the same thing as hearing what is actually unhearable. Our human ears simply cannot pick up some things. In the higher ranges, sounds can get dogs barking. In the lower ranges, they can get elephants moving. Today, we're going to talk about those lower vibrations. This is part one of a two-part episode featuring scientists who detect and then make sense of sounds at frequencies below the range of human hearing. It's called infrasound. This first conversation is with a volcanologist. The next will be with an elephant expert. It's no coincidence that really big things, like volcanoes or elephants, make some really deep sounds. Infrasound is nothing more than sound waves that are below the threshold of human hearing. So most humans can hear down to about 20 to 50 hertz. Volcanoes speak at a much lower frequency. At least they produce most of their sound energy at lower frequencies. So we need specialized microphones to be able to hear those sounds and turn those sounds into often to a visual display that we can interpret as scientists. And those sounds, they travel long distances without losing their intensity. That's Jeffrey Johnson, a volcanologist at Boise State University in Idaho. He's a leading expert on volcano infrasound. Johnson has been all over the world toting and installing specialized instruments that can pick up what our human ears cannot. One way to describe his work is to say that he wants to document what a volcano sounds like when it's behaving calmly so that he can recognize when it starts to grow agitated. He wants to read the rumbles that could be harbingers of bad things to come. People living near volcanoes, Johnson argues, could be a lot safer if we could only learn to hear the unheard and then interpret any clues that might be contained in these patterns of infrasound. So elephants are a good example because it turns out that elephants communicate with one another in subaudible infrasound frequencies quite often. And until we put out sensors to be able to detect those sounds, we had little idea that there was a communication going on with elephants at those low frequencies. I love that Johnson, the volcanologist, is willing to pull elephants into the picture. Our plan in this episode is to follow his volcano story, and in part two, as I said, we'll be off to the African savanna in pursuit of the infrasound story as it relates to elephants. The main thing right now is to think about these infrasound vibrations and the possibility that they may carry useful information. Jeffrey Johnson says you can think of volcanoes as very large musical instruments. Simply put, the bigger the instrument, the more likely you are to get a very deep sound. This is unsurprising, really. Compare the relative ranges of a tuba and a trumpet. Mm -hmm. 
double bass and a violin. And the deeper or lower you go, no matter the instrument or animal or geological phenomenon or whatever is producing the sound, eventually that sound falls out of range for a human eardrum. But it's still there, a measurable physical event. Measuring infrasound has enormous potential consequences, from predicting eruptions by listening to the voice of the earth to designing hearing aids. I like to use the analogy that volcanoes can be musical instruments and that organ pipe is, is a great analogy. You can have certain frequencies projected from a volcano depending upon how big your pipe is. Moreover, what happens when that pipe length changes is you can detect a change in frequency. And so the voice print of your volcano may change over time. Imagine, if you will, a lava lake, which is 150 meters below the crater rim. It's bubbling away and producing sounds. And then in the days prior to the big eruption, it starts to rise up and get shallower. That 150 meters is now 100 meters, and then 80 and 70 and 50 meters. That changes the frequency of the infrasounds that are being projected out of that volcano. And we were able to observe that. Jeffrey was actually on the ground in Chile in 2015 to witness and record sound from a major eruption from one of that region's largest active volcanoes, Villarica. I had gotten research dollars from the National Science Foundation to understand some intricacies of how sounds propagate in the atmosphere. So in January of 2015, we went down and we installed sensors all over the place including at the summit of Eureka, which is you know, 9,000 feet above sea level and, and glaciated and snowy. It's got this big crater that's beautiful. But we installed sensors at the top to listen to sort of the background state of activity at that volcano and also record the sounds many kilometers or many miles away from the summit. What we didn't know in January is that the volcano would enter into this period of unrest shortly thereafter. And so even, you know, just a few weeks after we made the installation at the summit, it really became apparent that we probably shouldn't be visiting the summit anymore. The volcano was just starting to wake up. Um, it has a lava lake perpetually, but this lava lake was starting to degas more and more violently, and it was throwing rocks, we call them ballistics and bombs, outside of the crater. And so standing on the crater rim might not have been such a good idea at that time. And I never expected during the six months that we were living at the base of this volcano that it would happen while we were there. The rising lava lake at Virica, which happened in the days prior to the March 3rd, 2015 eruption, was detectable as a change in the infrasound tones. The previous large eruption of Virica had happened in 1983, so that was something like 38 years prior. During the morning of March 3rd, I got a phone call as I was sleeping from a, a Chilean colleague who told me that I might want to think about grabbing my things and getting out of town. And that was quite an impactful wake-up call. Um, so we did wake up the children, and we put on our jeans and, and grabbed our passports, and then we walked out to the patio to look up at the volcano that was now erupting sky-high with a lava fountain. And this lava fountain was, was pretty impressive. It was about two kilometers in height. Uh, and it was this glowing red, um, you know, column of, of, of 
violent jetting. So we did stay in the patio watching the eruption and sort of getting a sense of whether or not it was building towards something larger. We did also hear a lot of commotion in the nearby community. People were getting in their cars and driving off. There was an evacuation site they were headed to. And we made the judgment call not to move anywhere because we felt like the roads would just be jam-packed with people trying to get away. And it turned out this volcanic eruption was, was large, but it wasn't catastrophic. And I am pleased to report that no one was hurt by the eruption. There was a bit of damage to some roads, but it happened in the middle of the night and the Chilean authorities had actually made sure to close the park in the immediate vicinity of the volcano, so no one was on the volcano itself. And fortuitously, we were there and had our instruments in place prior to the onset of that eruption. Many people might think being near an active volcano as it erupts is a bad idea, but from the scientific perspective, it was the right place at the right time because we were able to record the signals that were leading up to that eruption to make inferences about tools that can be used to forecast. So I understand that your interest, your, your fascination with the sounds generated by volcanoes, it goes back to one of my earliest memories of a big volcanic drama, Mount St. Helens. I mean, that's, that's a lot of years ago to be interested in the infrasound generated by volcanoes. That's kind of the cusp of the, this kind of science. Yeah. When I arrived at the University of Washington, my advisor, who was, a, was an earthquake specialist, he handed me a box of, of these seismograms. And a seismogram is a record of how the ground is vibrating, usually in response to earthquakes. And earthquakes are underground. But these particular seismograms were caused by sound waves that had been produced by the eruption. And they propagated up into the atmosphere before coming down to the ground and shaking the ground. And if you shake the ground with an airwave, it's also going to be an earthquake that you see as a seismogram. So I had this box of paper records. This was before the digital era. And I was able to determine that these sounds were going as high as 120 kilometers into the thermosphere before returning to the ground. And they were so energetic that they would shake the ground, shake the seismometer, and they would appear as a seismic record. Now, all of this leads up to a fascinating notion of a voice print, as though the volcano could speak, and like a fingerprint would have its own unique habits, patterns, uh, signature. Yeah. Turns out that volcanoes project in infrasound because they're, they're big, bigger instruments, bigger animals, bigger geophysical phenomena produce lower frequency sounds. But it's not just the explosion that matters or the bubbling lava lake, it's the crater shape which helps to influence the types of infrasounds that we're recording. And so you might have a volcano that has no crater at all, but what if you have a volcano that is a deep, narrow crater? and the sounds are being produced at the bottom of the crater. You get a modulating influence by that crater that can be quite significant. And it can be so significant that it can produce these beautiful resonant tones that we sometimes see at volcanoes. And the infrasound actually has a somewhat melodic appearance to it, a resonant appearance. Resonant appearance is a funny phrase. It's a confusion of the senses, mixing visual and auditory experience. But if you're going to listen to things that are unhearable for us humans, you simply have to compensate for what you cannot actually hear 
by leaning on another sense that can capture the gist of things. People have been mapping or charting sounds for decades, well, for centuries, actually, if you want to include musical notation. But at the very least, our first audio recordings, you know, the ones made on wax cylinders, those were translations of vibration into fixed, tangible little charts or maps. Even the old vinyl LPs of my childhood, these were maps of sound, you could say, the spiraling stereo grooves there with their own little microscopic mountains and valleys. And then there are modern computer-generated birdsong visualizations. These are known as spectrograms or sonographs. Some of them practically look like fine art. But even though we sometimes say that a bird erupts in song, and birders and ornithologists like to chart that sort of sound graphically, a geophysical eruption, getting back to volcanoes here, well, that's a far bigger drama by several orders of magnitude. And we're not just talking about eruptions from the cauldron deep in a crater. We also have to talk about the resulting flash mud flows. These sudden rivers of water, mud, rock, and debris are killers. They're known by the term lahars. A lahar is pyroclastic material that typically flows down a mountain and into a river valley as a violent slurry. When Mount Pinatubo erupted in the Philippines back in 1991, the eruption itself killed six people, but the lahars that followed killed 1,500 people. Here again, Jeffrey Johnson is keen on the fact that infrasound observation can be part of an early warning system specific to this particular type of danger. And so lahars are one of the worst hazards in terms of loss of life and property at volcanoes. Um, it's truly a, an impactful phenomena, uh, and they can occur in the absence of an eruption. Sometimes these volcanoes will fall apart as debris flows and mud flows without there being a big eruption. The glacier starts to melt, these torrents of water start to flow down, and volcanoes, which are just um, accumulations of loose sediments and rock, um, bulk up this torrent, and before long, this torrent can travel downslope and become a massive slurry of mud, blocks, trees, anything that's in the way. When Villarica erupted in 2015, we actually, for the first time ever, detected a lahar signal using our same infrasonic microphones. We were able to write a scientific paper about that lahar based upon the sound observations, and we were able to measure how fast that lahar was traveling and uh, it was it was an impactful paper. It was, it was quite fun to write. Is that kind of like on triangulation of distances between your different yes. monitoring stations to know the speed? Yeah. So just like your ears have directional capabilities, when we install multiple microphones in what's called an array, we're able to figure out where the sounds are coming from and track these sounds as they, in this case, move downslope. So we call it beamforming. Sometimes we call it triangulation. But yes, we're able to locate moving sources of sound. And the work at Eureka really inspired us to do more of this volcanic mud flow infrasound study. And we were able to procure additional funding, not to return to Eureka because we didn't want to wait another 40 years for the next lahar from Eureka, but to a volcano that has reliable lahar signals. And that's the case in Guatemala at Fuego Volcano, which has many, many secondary lahars during its rainy season. So even though that volcano is active, and if you were to visit it, you could watch it explode, the reality is that those lahars are caused by 
torrential downpours, rainfall, that occurs nearly every afternoon during the rainy season. And about twice per week, you can expect there to be a moderate-sized mud flow that comes down one of the many drainages. That frequently. Yeah, so we, we actually hedged our bets here. You know, we had a three-year project, and we determined to visit Fuego during the rainy season uh, several years in a row and instrument those drainages so that we could reliably capture these lahars. So in contrast to the, the previous study at Biorica, where we sort of fortuitously recorded the signal, we specifically went out to Fuego to, to track down or to hunt these lahars. Uh, and so during a three-week project, we were able to capture quite a few of them. So I remember years ago, I made a hiking trip down at Zion National Park, southern Utah, hiking up to Angel's Landing, and we're on the top of this little summit, and uh, suddenly we see the clouds rolling in, and I say, we probably ought to get out of here. And by the time we were about halfway down, there were tree trunks coming off the, the rim and boulders and water. And, and the, the, it happened so suddenly. It was as though uh, there was no waterfall up there and suddenly somebody turned on the spigots for five waterfalls. And, they just, and we could see the stream below us building, building, building. It's, is that the, 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 the dynamic with the lahar that it's just so sudden that it just almost catches you without any time to prepare for it? Yeah, yeah, you nailed it. Um, so basically, you could call a lahar, um, a secondary lahar at a volcano, a flash flood. And the reason we use the word lahar is because the, the source material, the source mud, is coming from a volcano. But they're very similar phenomena. Uh, flash floods and lahars have the same sorts of impacts, and you know they can impact people and property that are adjacent to these channels. And if you're in a channel, when one of these floods arrives, it's, it can be bad news. Um, often, and I don't know if you saw the onset of, of your flash flood, but the flash floods often come as an energetic initial pulse. And so you may not be able to, um, you, you might be surprised by the onset of these, these massive floods as they first approach. So how far away were you and your crew? I mean, were you just looking down at a stream bed or how did that play out? Right. We were at Fuego Volcano for a few weeks this summer uh, during rainy season expecting these lahars. And so what we can do is we can leave our instruments out there and they record 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So we're sure to capture these events with our digital recorders. Uh, now, the fun part uh, or the interesting part is to actually observe some of these things firsthand when possible. So I consider this the fortuitous part, that we were able to approach one of these drainages and observe the arriving lahar or mud flow from a safe vantage point on the top of the, the stream channel. We were quite lucky with our arrival because our, our colleagues from Guatemala are so knowledgeable about these lahars. We were working with an agency called Insuvume in Guatemala and staying at the Volcano Observatory at Fuego. And the local observers, um, Amilcar and Edgar, they know when these lahars are likely to happen. They're looking up at the sky and they can see where the thunderstorms are coming from. And they say, uh, there's a heavy rainfall up in the upper slopes. There's a good chance lahars will start this afternoon at, at two o'clock or at three o'clock. So as soon as Edgar says, uh, I think it's going to go today, we jump in the car and we drive oh, maybe 10 kilometers over bumpy roads, and then we jump off and, and sort of run up to the vantage point. And 
one of my students, uh, Maggie, was the first to sort of notice something. She said, I think I hear something kind of strange. And then we looked upstream and we saw the, the flow front approaching us. And that flow front, as we've talked about, is, is violent and it carries a lot of big detritus, you know, blocks the size of refrigerators, rocks, that is, um, some giant tree trunks. And it makes a, a substantial noise. Um, and this is an audible noise that we can hear and that Maggie was um, sensitive to. But at the same time, our infrasound sensors, which had been out there since, you know, 10 days earlier, had been recording these, um, these lahars long before... I would say long before the audio signal arrives. I think our coolest result from this particular experiment was the observation that if you listen to this world of low frequency sounds that humans aren't perceptive to, you can actually anticipate this mud flow arriving wherever you're located if you look at those infrasound records. I'm imagining two types of thrills that would get your heart pumping really fast. And one would be the thrill of just being utterly ambushed by one of these things, whether it's an eruption or a flash flood or a lahar, almost like a lightning bolt where it just makes your heart leap because you didn't see it coming. The other thrill would be a scientific kind of corroboration that you anticipated something and then it panned out, it played out as you had anticipated it would. Yeah, and you know the scientific component is is the justification for all this hard work, and it's a bonus if you can actually observe some of these miraculous things that nature can throw your way. But the science that came out of just this last year's project in Guatemala is is really exciting. These low frequency sounds can be detected when that lahar is as far away as five kilometers. It's not even anywhere close to where you're standing. But these sensors pick up on these subtle, low-frequency atmospheric oscillations. And if you analyze that data just correctly, you can issue an alert. If you can detect it five kilometers away, then you have 15 to 20 minutes of warning before the flow actually arrives. And that audible sound that we were just talking about, that's a precursor as well. But you can really only hear that for about 30 seconds prior to the arrival of the lahar. That's Jeffrey Johnson, volcanologist and infrasound expert. He has spent decades now listening for and divining the secrets of those volcano rumbles that are so deep that neither you nor I nor most anybody else can hear them. He's on the faculty at Boise State University in Idaho and is one of the leading scientists in his field. Of all the things the volcanologist might have discussed with us, very early on he brought up elephants which sets the stage for our next conversation on Constant Wonder. We promised elephants and elephants you shall have. With their capacity to detect infrasound, elephants might have far too much of a din to cope with if they ever lived in places like Chile or Ecuador, Guatemala along the Ring of Fire. In part two of this episode, we'll visit with Caitlin O'Connell, a woman who spent 30 years watching elephants in Africa her career with elephants began with a bang, or I should probably say, with an unhearable, powerful low rumble. She discovered that elephants have a capacity to use infrasound. They hear through the ground using their feet. O'Connell is now affiliated with the Harvard Medical School, where she has pulled together her understanding of elephant hearing and infrasound detection. Of all things, she's pulled this together with the improvement of hearing aids. 
but her real love is elephants themselves. She's terrific company to be with, and I'm excited to introduce her to you in part two of this exploration. We hope you've enjoyed part one, produced by Eric Schultzka and Mamie Teeples, with sound design by Addie Mangum and Kevin West. Don't forget to subscribe to Constant Wonder, and if you love what you're hearing, take a moment to leave a five-star rating or a favorable review wherever you get your podcasts. That helps us get word out. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.